The New Testament reading for this afternoon is taken from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 to 12. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Jesus Christ. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given, given to us in the one he loves. In him, we have redemption through his blood for the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. And he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and earth together under, under one head, even Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And let's pray again together. God, our Father, we, we pause and we sit before the matchless majesty of your holy word. Lord, we are deeply and forever indebted to your living voice that calls us, that awakens us, that renews us, that saves us. And so we ask, dear God, that your Holy Spirit would now be our teacher. We submit and bow to the authority of your word. And now, Lord, may the words of my mouth and may the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today we continue to look at Paul and uh, his opening statements to the churches around Ephesus that he makes here in chapter 1. And as I mentioned last week, Paul wastes no time in getting to the deep stuff. And so neither did we last week. We, uh, we, plunged, we plunged headlong into it. Last week we discussed the, the mystery of God's sovereign activity in choosing his people, choosing his remnant, choosing his, his elect. Uh, well before the world was made. In love, we read, he predestined us so that ultimately our salvation does not depend upon our fickle will. Rather, it depends upon the unchanging rock, the solid purposes of God. And though it may be very hard, no doubt, for some of us to reconcile the facts of God's uh, eternal love for his creation with his discrimination, with the discriminate choosing 
of a specific people, it is ours to bow humbly and adoringly at the revealed wisdom of God in these matters and to confess once again that He is God and we are not. And that from Him, through Him, and to Him are all things. I cannot but wonder, writes the godly John Newton, the slave trader turned Anglican pastor and hymn writer, I cannot but wonder that persons professing any reverence for the Bible should so openly and strongly declare their abhorrence for what the Bible so expressly teaches, namely that there is a discrimination of persons by the grace and the good pleasure of God, whereby nature there is no difference. And at that all times, respecting the salvation of these people, it is infallibly secured by a divine predestination. When I was down in Atlanta this last spring with a number of other pastors, um, we were in the very worst, I'd never been to Atlanta before, and we arrived, and the conference just happened to be in the very worst part of Atlanta that you could possibly go to. But there we were, and we were discussing church planting, and uh, the leader of that conference asked us to brainstorm for a moment. He said, what do you think about a certain topic? I'd like you to speak out words that you find applicable to this certain uh, aspect of the life of the church. And as he was writing down words on the, black, the, the whiteboard, I put up my hand and I said, I'd like to think about a word that not many of us think about anymore. I'd like us to remember that God's purposes are discriminating. I used the D word, in fact, and you could hear a pin drop as everybody looked around, turned, as like I'd spoken the deplorable world on Charn. I, I just, it's like they couldn't believe that I'd said discriminating. Mind you, we're in the Deep South, and that word is fraught with uh, painful history, no doubt. And yet it's true. Yet it's true. God chooses on the basis of a holy discrimination. And discrimination was one of Spurgeon's favorite themes. What makes us to differ? Asks Spurgeon. What makes us to differ? Why is it that this day, I am not sitting down a callous hearer, hardened under the gospel. Why am I not at this very hour hearing the word of my outward ear, but rejecting it in my inward heart? Why is it that I have not been suffered to reject the invitation of Christ to despise his grace, to go on Sunday after Sunday as so many do, and yet being like a deaf adder to the words? Oh, have I made myself to differ? Have I done this? Banish the thought, says Spurgeon. Here is distinguishing grace. Here is discriminating regard. Here are some suffered to perish. Here are others the least deserving and the most obscure made the special objects of divine affection. Do not, beloved in the Lord, says Spurgeon, be afraid to dwell on this high and glorious doctrine. This, writes the godly Newton, this is the plain scriptural meaning of the text in front of us. And if it is not, then the Bible is a mere nose of wax without a determinate meaning. How clever you must be, writes Newton, to interpret so many passages of the Bible in a sense more favorable to the natural prejudices of man 
against God's sovereignty. So right too of the greatest evangelical voices, and I might add, one of the greatest Anglicans. And I, for one, am glad for this. I, for one, am glad that in the end, my salvation does not depend upon me because I can choose and I can unchoose God with the regularity of a clock, even when I confess that I will not deny him. Even when I say to the Lord, I will die before I deny you. Moments later, I can find myself sitting around the fires of the world, warming myself at these fires and insisting with great energy, I do not know the man. And even so, with all of my fickleness, beneath my fickleness, and around my fickleness, and above my fickleness, there is the Lord upholding my faith. You see, Judas also denied the Lord, no less than Peter did. But Jesus had chosen Peter, and the Lord was praying for Peter so that ultimately his faith would not fail. And though at times in this life, with respect to our affections and faith, we can find ourselves veritably like an ash heap, this thing remains true. Because the Lord has chosen us. Because the Lord ever lives to make intercession for us. Because the Lord has determined to save us to the uttermost. The embers of our faith will always rise again. No matter how cold and dim they become. And that, my brothers and sisters, is a thought worth thinking. (laughs) Again and again. Well, Paul goes on from speaking about what had happened in the mystery of God's will well before the foundation of the world in electing us in eternity past, and he goes on to discuss what we receive now in Christ. In him, he writes, we have redemption through his blood, and in him we have the forgiveness of sins. And these two words, redemption and forgiveness, should never be words that lose their potency. They should never be words that lose their savor with us. At the mention of redemption and at the mention of forgiveness, there should be a certain thrill in our souls. There should be a certain quiver in our minds as we hear about redemption and forgiveness. But if you're anything like me, you know that we can bandy these terms about forgiveness, 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 redemption, atonement. Until sadly, we can sing hymns about these matters. They were not that much stirred at all. In fact, sometimes we can sing a hymn about redemption with a yawn. And these important words that are definitive for us as the children of God, we are the redeemed. We are the forgiven today. These words can become dull to us if we forget their true meaning. And so let me today very briefly remind us again what it means to be redeemed and remind us what it means to be forgiven. In him, we have redemption through his blood. Paul's choice of words in the Greek here conveys that we've been bought back from something. We've been delivered. We have been rescued from some terrible evil by a payment. But it's very easy to listen to the spirit of our age and to conclude 
that human beings are pretty good at being bad, but they're not that bad at being good either. I remember sitting in a lecture at the University of Toronto, sitting in a lecture hall, and my professor said to us, he said, you know, the fall of Adam and Eve, the fall of Adam and Eve, it was a tragedy, but it wasn't a catastrophe, he said. And you see how easy it can be to imagine the sinner as a tragic hero, flawed, but admirable, fallen, but beautiful. And the Bible speaks so very differently. We are redeemed, it says, from a twistedness. We are redeemed from a perversion and a spiteful deformity. We were rescued from a state of sin so extreme, so opposed to the virtue and to the goodness of God that Paul can only describe it in Romans 1 as we were haters of God. Haters of God. Imagine what it means to hate the very fountain of all goodness. Imagine what it means to be sunk in hate towards the author of every good and perfect gift. And so listen to Paul as he describes the fallen nature in Titus. He says, you spent your days in what? You spent your days in malice, in envy, hating one another. The scriptures don't equivocate. In the wake of the fall, we had become willingly these shriveled and dark and hideous things, slithering bags of poison and hatefulness that shook our fists at God and everything that God stands for. We were abusers of ourselves. We were abusers of one another. We, my brothers and sisters, were haters of God, Paul says. In fact, we had become so very monstrous that God, as Calvin writes, was compelled to hate and to abhor us. We were utterly marred. We were so given up to the evil that God is against that God was compelled to become our mortal enemy. He could not look at us without desiring to destroy us. Isaiah 59.2, your sins have separated you from God and your sins have hidden God's face from you. He cannot look at you, Isaiah says. And yet here is our plight. We needed to be looked at in mercy. We needed to be looked at without the weapons of the Almighty against us. And we had this terrible monstrosity in us that needed to be destroyed without destroying us. And so a price was paid, my brothers and sisters, to rescue us from a plight that not one of us can adequately fathom today. Calvin writes very succinctly, the atonement which is so freely bestowed upon us cost the Son of God very dear. The Lord in that dark night on Gethsemane, he looked down into the abyss of our sinful natures. He gazed at all of our twisted perversity, all of the untold billions of acts of hateful sin that humanity has ever produced and that humanity will ever produce. And his righteous soul, it began to stagger 
at the very thought of what he saw. He who loved his father and his father's righteousness more than anything else must become what the father hates. He must become that which his father can destroy once and for all. And so Jesus falls on his face at the very thought and the horror of this, and he prays, Father, if there's any way for this to pass, please let me not do this thing. And yet for the joy, my brothers and sisters, for the joy of redeeming his brothers and sisters, this Joseph who was sent ahead to suffer in order to save us from our famine, he prays, nevertheless, O oh my Father, not my will, but thine be done. And he who knew no sin, he became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. And so the godly and judicious Richard Hooker writes this. He says, We care for no other knowledge in the world but this, that man hath sinned and God hath suffered, that God hath made himself the sin of men, and that men are made the righteousness of God. Jesus became the thing that God hates, and that which in the full force of his holy anger, God could destroy forever. He, writes Calvin, experienced the fears, and he experienced the terrors, and Jesus experienced the horrors that should have rested upon us. See, in Christ, the enmity and the hatefulness and the poison, the malice, the monster, was destroyed once forever by the righteous anger of God at a cost that not one of us will ever know at a cost so high that forever and ever we will gratefully be compelled to sing the same song. Worthy, worthy, worthy is the Lamb who was slain. For by your blood you ransomed a people for God. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. For in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood. And today we have the forgiveness of our sins. And so, brothers and sisters, as we approach the table of the Lord today, I can say no better than this. Let us remember what the Lord Jesus did for us. Remember that Jesus died for you and feed upon him in your hearts by faith today with thanksgiving. In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit. Amen.